Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part two of week five, titled Disciples. Recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. What about Luke's story? How does Luke uh, treat the Twelve? Luke deals with Mark. He also grants the disciples don't always succeed. They're human, just like anyone. They fail occasionally. But in Luke, he has a different... um, a different slant on the Twelve. Now, I think we had talked about in previous evenings that uh, when we were asking about, well, how does the Holy Spirit help us? Well, in in Matthew, the Holy Spirit really doesn't help that much. At least we don't see the Holy Spirit helping because there's not a developed theology of the Holy Spirit. We simply get at the end of the story, baptize people in the name of the Holy Spirit. We're not told what that means. It doesn't mean that Matthew doesn't have a notion of the Holy Spirit. It just means he doesn't make it part of his gospel. Luke, by contrast, is all about the Holy Spirit, right? For Luke, the disciples are not scribes trained for the kingdom. They are prophets in the making. We already looked at that at the very first week when we talked about the birth stories, right? Everyone at the beginning of Luke's gospel is a prophet, becomes a prophet because they are filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, John the Baptist will be a prophet, Uh, That is announced to his father, Zechariah. Elizabeth is a prophet when the fetus kicks her and uh, fills her with the Holy Spirit by the kick. And Elizabeth prophesies about Mary. Mary, too, although she's not explicitly called a prophet, she basically, the Magnificat, is a prophetic song about how God helps Israel, helps his servant Israel. Uh, So, too... Um, Zechariah, when he finally gets to talk after his mutinous, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesies. In the temple, uh, in the temple of Jerusalem, uh, the prophetess Anna prophesies about Jesus. Jesus himself, as we saw during the story of the baptism, Jesus himself is filled with the Holy Spirit and after his testing, is, after he passes his tests, He declares himself a prophet in his hometown of Nazareth. Finally, you have the church. You have the church being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, just as Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She gets overshadowed twice, I guess, because she was at Pentecost too. And they become prophets. They prophesy. That's how Peter interprets what happens at Pentecost. This is what the prophet Joel said. At the end of days, everyone will prophesy. So it's a very clear, consistent and, uh, and straightforward theme. And so you can bet that, the, that, the, that the, for Luke, the disciples are being trained uh, in the, for this role. But they won't get, it's okay if they fail because they only need to, to really get it right when Pentecost comes. Because right? that's when they're fully commissioned. Uh, one other thing about um, Luke's portrayal of the twelve as prophets. We speak of the twelve, of course, but obviously after... Um, By the time we get to Acts chapter 1, there are only 11 of them because Judas has exploded. Spontaneously combusted like in Spinal Tap, right? 
Uh, he hangs himself in Matthew's gospel, but he explodes, which is what happens. You know, bad things happen to bad people in, in the book of Acts, including Herod, and, uh, Herod Agrippa, who gets eaten up by worms because he's a wicked person. So Judas is presented as the, uh, the failed disciple. So before they do anything, before they even have Pentecost, they have to reconstitute the fullness of the Twelve, right? So what do they do? They have a conclave, right? They nominate people, and then they ask the Holy Spirit to determine who is to be chosen. So you have this uh, establishing, re-establishing of the original Twelve, the original number of the Twelve, as a prerequisite for the prophetic mission. So again, the very notion of the Twelve for Luke is linked to the idea of prophecy and of the prophetic vocation of the church. And that comes about yet again halfway through the book, or a third through the book of Acts, chapter 9, when Paul becomes a prophet. Paul is not converted to anything, by the way, except being converted from being a persecutor to an advocate. He doesn't convert from one religion to another. He becomes commissioned as a prophet. That's explicitly what he is told uh, by the voice. But, uh, But before Paul really springs into action as a prophet, guess what happens? Someone dies. One of the twelve, one of the new twelve, dies. And that is James, the son of Zebedee, right, brother of John, one of the four original disciples. Uh, he's killed by Herod, uh, Herod Agrippa. And it's at that point in chapter 12 when, again, the number of the sort of active prophetic community of the, of the apostles goes down to 11. Paul leaps into action, becomes number 12, implicitly. The Spirit has already chosen him for his mission. So Luke and Acts are about the role of the prophet. We've already said that, and we see this again. So um, how does Luke treat Mark's stories about the Twelve? He has a much more radical solution than Matthew does. Matthew, Matthew uses Mark's stories in order to make them into teaching moments or to, to rehabilitate them that way. Luke cuts it all out. Now, of course, there's still... Uh, failures that he reports, such as Peter's denial. But Jesus takes him aside and says, look, Satan is going to sift you. He's going he's to uh, cause you to stumble. But later, afterwards, when you come back, go and strengthen your brothers. So even Jesus sort of is um, comforting to Peter about his own future failure. Um, Luke even whitewashes the, the, uh, the confession of Peter uh, uh, just before the transfiguration. Peter gets it right. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, and there's not even a rebuke. The whole thing about get behind me, Satan, is, is eliminated from, from Luke's narrative. So Luke really wants to, even more than Matthew, wants to show us that the Twelve are ultimately competent, regardless of, of whatever foibles they might have. But the way that he really deals with this whole thing, now remember that, that the key area, the key part of Mark's gospel where the whole dynamic of misunderstanding begins and is as sort of expressed in terms of the failure of the Twelve to understand the feeding stories, that whole section of Mark, chapter 6 through chapter, part of chapter 6 to part of chapter 8, more or less, 75 and a half consecutive verses are deleted by Luke. Luke deletes two and a half chapters of Mark. He simply doesn't have it at all. Matthew uses that stuff and modifies it. Luke gets rid of it. Now, it's probably not just because he, uh, he's trying to make the 12 look good. And he does make them look good because guess what happens? The last thing that happens in that whole cycle of stories in Mark 
is the first feeding story. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, everyone's happy, and that's the end of that. And then immediately we skip from that, that's uh, Luke chapter, um, what am I looking at here? This is Luke chapter 9, verse 17, and immediately in Luke chapter 9, verse 18, we're, we're right there at Caesarea Philippi ready for Peter's confession. I mean, it's literally, he, he leaps <laughs> through leaps and bounds across the whole painful process of formation that the twelve have in Matthew, he just goes straight to, Peter understood. It only took him one verse to figure out who Jesus was, right? And then we have the confession, sans get behind me Satan. And then it goes on from there. Well, what is this, why did, Mark, why did Luke eliminate all this? It's not just to make the disciples look good. There's even something more um, weighty at work here. Now, we already mentioned that that cycle of stories that begins and ends with the feeding and after the last feeding, you have Jesus in the boat with the twelve not getting it. The central story is the one that I mentioned earlier, the story of Jesus being told by a Gentile woman the meaning of his miracles, of the feeding stories, uh, or, or actually arguing what it should be, and the key being the notion of the leftovers. So that whole cycle of stories functions in Mark to justify a mission to the Gentiles. We all take, for, because we're all Gentiles here in this room, we take for granted that the kingdom of God is for us too. But, uh, and Mark agrees with that. Mark says, even in Jesus' own ministry, even though he resisted this at one point, the woman argued for it and, and the woman got her way and Jesus presumably recognized uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in this message and responded full-heartedly. So in Mark, there is a mission to the Gentiles already within the ministry of Jesus. And it's precisely that that the Twelve are absent from. Uh, But that's how it works. Now in Matthew, and this is sort of another theme uh, that that, that, uh, we see how Matthew and Luke use Mark. For Matthew, uh, there is no mission to the Gentiles. I came only to the house of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you will too, says Jesus to the twelve. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Don't even go to the Samaritans. Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he says to the Gentile woman in Matthew's gospel. I came only to the house of Israel. Sorry. Um, And she still gets the favor from him, but it's simply a favor to her as an individual. Matthew eliminates the whole Gentile mission that we find in Mark. He deletes it. Because for Matthew, the Gentile mission begins after Jesus' mission to Israel has been completed, which is to say, at the resurrection. That's why Matthew ends on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, ends with the, the Mount of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus enunciated his mission to Israel. That's where we return at the end of the story for Jesus to enunciate his mission to the world, or rather, enunciate the Twelve's mission to evangelize the world. So what we have in all the Gospels, and indeed in every New Testament text, more or less, is an event, which is the expansion of the kingdom beyond the boundaries of Israel. It's not revolutionary. The prophets anticipate that all nations will turn to Mount Zion for instruction at the end of days. But where each evangelist puts this moment and how he links it to the understanding of the disciples is unique. For Mark... The disciples don't get it because Jesus went on this mission alone. 
but it happened in Jesus' lifetime. For Matthew, it happened after the resurrection. For Luke, didn't happen until Acts chapter 10, where a Roman centurion, Cornelius, is told by the Holy Spirit to have a meeting with a certain Peter. And we know how that story goes, right? Peter uh, shows up at Cornelius' house, or is it the other way around? Uh, Peter proclaims the good news to Cornelius after saying, I realize that God, uh, everyone is acceptable to God uh, who does right, who is a person of goodwill and is acceptable to be baptized. And then the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon Cornelius and everyone says, who can prevent them from being baptized? Now, why would Peter need to do that? Why would Peter need to be explained to about this if this had already been dealt with in the time of Jesus? Now, the reality is that if we look at the arguments within the early church in the book of Acts, as well as especially in the letters of Paul, that justify this move outwards, um, neither side in the dispute can, for the life of them, appeal to a saying of Jesus, a clear teaching of Jesus about this. All they can do is make arguments from Scripture on their own reasoning, guided by the Holy Spirit, to be sure, but they never refer to Jesus, which suggests very much that for Luke, the historian, he probably is saying, no, this, this dispute was raised and resolved after the resurrection. So this becomes the other reason why Luke eliminates those 75 and a half verses of Mark, because that's where Mark justifies a Gentile mission in Jesus' own time, where Jesus is the one who inaugurates it. That's not how it happened, said Mark. Or that's not how it happened, said Luke. The Holy Spirit spoke to Peter, and it was a surprise to Peter at that point. Now, we, we, we might say, well, what about Pentecost? Wasn't that a universal message? Yeah, it was a universal message to Jews living all around the world. Right? Because the only people at Jerusalem for Pentecost were Jews and converts to Judaism. It's not until the, uh, and so when Jesus has proclaimed my word to the ends of the earth, they understand that to mean proclaimed to all the Jews at the ends of the earth. It's not until chapter 10 of Acts that the surprise comes out. And the interesting thing is that the surprise happens in exactly the same way in Luke and in Mark. It begins with a story of an argument about defilement, about how human beings are defiled. Can things outside of us defile us? Okay, Jesus uh, in, the, in the gospel story says, no, nothing outside you can defile you, only the vices within ourselves defile us. Therefore, you don't need to ritually cleanse your hands before eating, you Pharisees. Um, and in Mark's version of that story, of that teaching, about the source of defilement, Mark, as the narrator, not Jesus, even Mark can't claim that Jesus said this. All Mark can do is says, this is what Jesus must have meant. Mark then says, what Jesus did by making this point is, by decla- is he declared all foods to be clean, which has nothing to do with the dispute at issue, whether you wash your hands or not before you eat. Now, clean and unclean foods, that's a matter of the Torah. That's a matter of God's everlasting covenant with Israel, eternally valid according to uh, the Torah itself, an eternal covenant where Israel is to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, the ritually pure and the ritually impure, that which defiles us ritually and that which doesn't. Why? Because we're imitating God. We're making God 
uh, God's own holy nature visible in these symbolic terms to the world. Well, did Jesus abrogate that, that, that basic law of distinguishing between the clean and the unclean? Yes, says Mark, he did it. And that's why we have, immediately after that, Jesus encountering, an, to him, to his eyes, an unclean person who argues, who argues with him about the legitimacy of extending the kingdom to them as well. So you have no clean or unclean foods in the first story in Mark, immediately followed by a story about ultimately no clean or unclean people. Well, what happens in Acts chapter 10, the conversion of the first Gentile? Peter gets a vision of, remember? He gets a vision of something before he hears about Cornelius. It's a vision of food. In fact, a vision of unclean food, unclean animals, animals prohibited by Leviticus, by God in Leviticus. And he's commanded to kill and eat them, and Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean or touched it, right? Well, if, if Jesus declared all foods unclean, Peter wouldn't have said that, right? And so Peter says, I won't do it. And then the voice comes, what God has declared clean, do not declare unclean, do not treat as unclean. So it begins with a story about clean and unclean food. That barrier is dissolved. And then immediately afterwards, Peter gets a call from the Holy Spirit. says, go to, go to Cornelius, right? Um, and he does. And he says to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit taught me to regard no person as unclean and unworthy of the good news. So what Luke has done in the middle of the book of Acts, he's reproduced the very argument that he's eliminated from Mark's gospel. He's projected it forward, or in his view, he probably restores it to what he thinks is its rightful historical place. So the understanding or misunderstanding of the Twelve continues into the book of Acts in order to capture a vision, a historical vision, of how the church grappled with various issues about its mission in the world. So even so, so, the, so that when we talk about the twelve and disciples, it's not just about whether the gospel author likes them or not. It's about what and how does the portrayal of the twelve uh, anticipate for us, map out, put in a in a in a broad historical um, spectrum the history of salvation, how the kingdom of God expands to the Gentiles. Each gospel author has a different timetable. The same result happens, though. Each each tells it differently. And um, so for Matthew and Luke, the 12 are the disciples who understand, who overcome their deficient faith, who are fully commissioned to be scribes or to be prophets. Uh, And then we continue on with the story. For Mark, he leaves the question mark. Were they? And what are you going to do about it? He throws it back at us. Are you going to be disciples to carry out the message? So I think I'll stop there. We have some time to discuss uh, and to, to talk about the, the, either the representation of the 12 or Jesus's. Uh, there are, of course, other things about discipleship that we could talk about, too, that Jesus says, like, take up your cross and those things, too. So thoughts, questions, comments? Okay, let me see. So, so, so is the question sort of like, is the way that Jesus is presented as forming the 12, is that sort of a model for how people were formed within the church later on. Is that? Okay. Yeah, so the question is, is, are the stories about the 12, 
are they themselves, in a sense, modeled after or modeling uh, catechesis, the, 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 the formation of Christians within the early church? Um, well, how would, we, uh, how would we know this? Well, we do have a text called the Didache, which didn't make it into our New Testament, but it was considered divinely inspired by many people for a long time. Um, actually, I don't know what its status is considered to be. There are many divinely inspired books that didn't make it into the Bible, uh, like the Shepherd of Hermas. So just because it's not in the New Testament doesn't mean the church didn't view it as a kind of a, an authoritative or at, at, at any rate a useful tool for understanding uh, Jesus' teaching. And in the Didache, it, it gives many uh, guidelines for how to... Well, it has to do with managing a lot of things. The sacraments, for one thing, like how do you do baptism, but also the two ways that you must follow, the good way or the bad way, sort of like the Sermon on the Mount. So there are early Christian texts that suggest that catechesis did have similar structures to some of the things we've seen. Certainly the Sermon on the Mount, I would suggest, is probably looks the way it does because that was how the catechesis of the early church, at least for Matthew's community, developed. And I can say that as a hypothesis because many of those same teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are simply elsewhere in Luke's gospel. Now, you could argue, well, maybe Matthew had the original version and Luke sort of threw it apart. But again, we have to be agnostic about such issues. The key thing is that we have other Christian texts that clearly uh, do have a kind of catechetical bent, and there are parallels between that and some of the at least teaching arrangements in the Gospels. Um, you know, beyond that, we could look at the book of Acts, right? How does Acts present the, the forming of disciples? Um, you know, we just, the story we just told about Peter would be an example about how he came to understand something that had not yet been understood about the Gentile mission, right? Um, so the church, uh, you know, but beyond that, you know, we, we don't have a lot of examples from the New Testament, but I would say that's where I would start to look, and I would say there probably would be some parallels. Um, you know, my own interpretation of Mark that I presented earlier about why does Mark end with a question mark, I think that's catechetical too. I think the whole gospel of Mark is basically catechesis for the baptized. This is what you got yourself into. <laughs> this is your responsibility now. <laughs> um, so we can, we can develop... We can imagine, perhaps, ways in which the stories of the Twelve would maybe coincide with the formation of ordinary Christian disciples. Um, if we brought John's gospel into the equation, we would have that in spades. I mean, all you need to do is compare John's gospel, his story of Jesus and the Twelve, with First John, which is <laughs> the beloved disciple speaking and catechizing his community in exactly the same idioms and cadences of Jesus' discourses in John's gospel, same theology. He and Jesus talk exactly alike. When Jesus says, I'll be within you and you'll be in me, he wasn't kidding with John. Uh, but yeah, so I think we could, find, I could, we, we, we could find ways of imagining what catechesis might have looked like for the earliest Christians from the New Testament alone. Other thoughts? Uh, so there are indeed. So the question was, um, if there's no mission to the Gentiles in Matthew's gospel until after the resurrection, why do we have these stories about Jesus encountering individual Gentiles? And there are these two. There's the woman who, in Mark, legitimizes the Gentile mission, and that story is turned into a story of her faith. They, the disciples have little faith. She has a lot of faith. 
And the centurion story, where, where the, you know, we have this in our, in our liturgy, you know, I'm not worthy to receive you under my roof, but even you just say the word and my, my son will be healed. Right? Um, that story, too. The function of the story is not to say, okay, Gentiles are, 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 are we're going to now target them, but rather uh, it becomes a contrast, a foil. The outsider shows more faith than those who are supposed to. So it becomes a teaching moment again. Right? So I think there are indeed, Matthew doesn't deny that there's contact with Gentiles, but he, he spins that contact in a very different way than Mark does. Right? So that, that would be the answer there. And I'm and in Luke, the same thing. I mean, Cornelius is basically, uh, in Acts, is basically the mirror image of that centurion in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the centurion in the Gospel of Luke, which is Luke's version of Matthew's story, the centurion comes to, to get Jesus to heal his son or his servant. Um, in Luke's version, it says, the, the Jewish community came and says, this man is worthy of your attentions, Lord, because he built our synagogue. He loves us. And guess what about Cornelius? What do we hear about him? He loves, uh, he gives alms, he, he worships the Jewish God. I mean, the worthiness of these centurions is made an explicit theme of both stories. So I'd say that that too. Uh, and this is the other thing. I mean, we're just skimming the surface. We're just taking select themes that we can use for a useful comparison and contrast of the Gospels. Um, you can do this with a lot of other stuff, too. And, and what I'm hoping on these talks doing, maybe, is providing with some tools and ways of thinking how you might do that. How would I make sense of this story in Matthew? Well, let's see what Mark and Luke do with it, you know? Um, and in the same way, you can... Uh, the book of Acts functions as that mirror image, like I said, of the Gospel of Luke. If you want to understand a distinctive feature of Luke, you read Acts. Right? That's how you do it. You, and you'll... If it's significant theme you're looking at in Luke, you'll find it mirrored in Acts somewhere, somehow. And the, the comparison of the two incidents or themes will help illuminate what Luke is trying to say. So I think we'll have to stop there. We're at 7.03. So we'll hope to see you all next week for Jesus and the Temple. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.